You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome. Yes, I'm laughing. Why shouldn't we be laughing? Lockdown down the East Coast. Why shouldn't we be laughing? That's right. This is the Anarchist World this week. We laugh at the world. If you wonder what anarchism is all about, yes, it is about laughing, but it's also about reality. Anarchists, anarchos, without rulers, what's the anarchist uh, struggle? The anarchist struggle is to create a society without rulers, what gives rulers the ability to determine the fate of billions of people, inequalities in power and wealth. That's right, power and wealth. And obviously most of this program will be taken up regarding uh, those two central issues to the human condition, power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve or share power, possibly through direct democratic means, and it's the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. And as you listen to the program today, we will weave those two central elements of the anarchist struggle into most of the issues we're looking at. But firstly... I'd like to send my condolences to Dr. Jacob Rumbiak, who will be well known to uh, many Australians. Uh, Jacob is a refugee from West Papua. He's the uh, he has a um, significant position in the West Papua independence movement. He's devoted his life to it. He spent over ten years in uh, Indonesian jails before he escaped to Australia. I mean, he's been separated from his family now for almost 20 years. And I'd like to send my condolences to Jacob Rumbiak because his eldest son, who's only 34, Sendai, has just died on the 9th of August in Sulawesi in Indonesia from COVID-19. He contracted the disease four or five... He contracted... He started to develop symptoms four or five days before and he was dead within five days. He was a very healthy active young man. So those of you who think that COVID-19 doesn't exist, think again. He's, uh, unfortunately, his uh, partner is pregnant with their first child and uh, it's um, obviously a very difficult time for Jacob, being here a refugee in this country and now a, a, a citizen. It was impossible for him to go to Indonesia uh, for many, many years because he would have been rearrested and re-interned and put in jail. So it's a particularly harrowing time for Dr Jacob Rumbiak and his extended family and his friends here in Australia and his partner Louise and I extend all my condolences and I'm sure 
all of you, or, or most of you, will do the same thing. So uh, I think it's a reminder, salient reminder of how indiscriminate COVID-19 can be. Now, I'd like to start off with the concept of the pandemic of the unvaccinated. You like that? The pandemic of the unvaccinated. I've noticed that despite the government's total incompetence regarding vaccination, that vaccination rates are beginning to increase quite rapidly as more and more vaccinations arrive in this country. And I said despite the government's best efforts to sabotage the situation, obviously the situation in New South Wales has highlighted to many people that the only way out of trying to contain an exceptionally contagious virus, especially the Delta variant, is through mass vaccination and possibly the production of uh, herd immunity in the community. And to a significant degree, we're not seeing the high death rates which we saw in Victoria uh, a year previously when uh, Melbourne was closed down for 111 days because of the number of people who had already been vaccinated in New South Wales. But we do have a problem. Now, I'd like to explain the difference between contagion and virulence. If something is contagious, it means that it spreads. And the more contagious it is, the easier it spreads. And that's why the Delta variant of COVID-19 has been difficult to contain. Currently, the mortality rate in a uh, so-called Western society with uh, intensive care facilities, because let's not forget there are very few treatments. It's really a matter of prevention. The mortality rate has been kept down at less than 1% through vaccination and through aggressive intervention in an intensive care network because you've got to remember that the COVID-19 virus is quite interesting. Well, for a medical practitioner, it's interesting. I'm sure it's not interesting for you, but it should be interesting. Um, influenza virus attacks the lungs. The beauty about the COVID-19 virus, and that's why we've got the concept of the long COVID disease, where people can have lifelong complications, it not only attacks the lungs, it also attacks the bloodstream. And that's why many people who die of complications of COVID-19 just don't die from respiratory failure. They actually die from clotting diseases. And the interesting thing, and again, I know it's tragic, but I'll, I'll use the word interesting, is that most of the people who are now dying on getting very sick or ending up in intensive care have either not been vaccinated or have only had one vaccination. So we are facing the problem of virulence. And what is virulence? Virulence means that a disease has an increased mortality. It means it has an increased um, fatality in the population. Now, currently, unlike SARS, which had a mortality rate of about 10%, and the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which occurred about a decade ago, had a mortality of over 30%, the COVID-19 virulence is about 1% to 2% in a Western society with intensive care facilities and up to 3 to 4% in places where there aren't um, medical facilities. Now, the problem is that if there are large people, large sections of the population who do not want to be vaccinated, what that means is the chance of obtaining herd immunity decreases dramatically 
and the chances of more virulent COVID-19 strains becoming a problem becomes a reality. It's not a big reality, but it's a reality when you look at the way these viruses mutate. And the idea about mass vaccination is to uh, stop the virus from being, being able to be transferred. So we have a problem. We've got a problem. Those who have now decided to vaccinate, the numbers are increasing exponentially every day, have reasonable protection. You're not protected from getting COVID-19, but you're protected from the worst excesses of COVID-19, like respiratory failure, clotting disease, long COVID, and the list goes on and on. But if for whatever reason you have decided not to be unvaccinated... Not only are you creating problems for yourself, you're creating problems for the people around you, your family, your friends, your workmates. So I'm encouraging people to look at the evidence, not, you know, not opinion pieces, you know, on the net, but evidence and make up your mind because I'm very concerned very concerned of the number of people who, for whatever reason, whether it's a religious reason, a philosophical reason, um, decide not to vaccinate because what we will see is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And the dilemma is, and this is a real dilemma, we think that this is just an Australian problem, but the dilemma is if billions of people around the planet are not vaccinated for whatever reason, we will see more virulent strains of COVID-19 breaking out in the community and causing more death, social dislocation and long-term illness. You know, I've been a doctor, what, for 45 years now? And something I learned a long, 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 long time ago is ultimately we're a bag of salty water. And if you push that bag at one point, there's a reaction at another point. And if, you know, you are not willing, for whatever reason, to vaccinate, as I said before, you are not only putting your own life at risk, which is your problem, but you are putting the health and lives of the unvaccinated around you at risks. And unfortunately, unvaccinated people tend to be, you know, uh, live in uh, various uh, various communities across the country seem to somehow think that vaccination is the devil's spawn. So think about it. There are positive responses. I've had both, both injections of AstraZeneca. I've had minimal side effects. Maybe I'm lucky. But uh, I'm pleased that I've been vaccinated. But I'm also pleased, not because what I've done is good for me and the people around me, but every one of us who decides to be vaccinated is actually protecting that small rump in the community, which I think will be about 5% within six months, who think that vaccination somehow is some uh, violation of their bodily function. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access it by going to 3cr.org.au. 
Now, I know the world has been surprised, especially the Western media, by the uh, fall of the uh, Kabul government. And that's the key, Kabul, K-A-B-U-L, government, not the Afghanistan government. And considering uh, the investment that the West was involved in over the last 20 years in Afghanistan, which led to the death of 41 Australians, Many Australian soldiers have come back with permanent injuries and continue to suffer from that exposure to the Afghanistan war. The death of over 2,000 US servicemen. Let's not forget that over the last 20 years, over a quarter of a million, that's 250 Afghan, Afghan people, 250,000 Afghan people have died in this bloody conflict. And the resurgence of the Taliban as a credible force in terms of the future of Afghanistan, and let's not forget the Taliban is basically an Islamic theocracy. I mean, their laws will be based on the interpretation of their interpretation of the Quran, obviously like the Bible and the Torah and the Quran, there are various interpretations, you know, that human beings make of these fundamental documents. And let's not forget that the Taliban do not represent all of the people of Afghanistan because we've still got that schism that occurred in the Muslim faith hundreds of years ago between the Shia and Sunni. Now, if you look at Afghanistan, if you look at a map of Afghanistan, it's quite interesting. You've got connection with Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan, as well as Iran and Pakistan, and there's a 75-kilometre border with China. There seems to be a connection between China and Afghanistan, this corridor which is ruled by the Chinese, which is quite interesting. Now, in northern Afghanistan, let's not forget that in northern Afghanistan, it was never pacified by the Taliban, which are a Sunni-based Islamic theocracy. Because the, the Hazara, which dominate this part of the country, are supporters of the Shia religion. So I think to understand what's happened in Afghanistan is we need to go back 40 or 50 years. Let's not forget, this country has been in the midst of a civil war for almost 50 years and the carnage has been, as far as the uh, population is concerned, has been extraordinary. The first thing to remember is that, believe it or not, Afghanistan was a communist state. And let's not forget when the Soviet Union came in to bolster the faltering communist administration in the 70s, if in Afghanistan the West supported the rise and rise of Islamic fundamentalism by supporting the Mujahideen, who were involved in a holy war against the Soviet invaders. When the Soviet invaders were pushed out, the country basically fractured and 
various warlords, Mujahideen warlords, ruled various parts of Afghanistan, imposing some particularly harsh conditions on the people. And that war continued after the Mujahideen had regained control of Afghanistan. Now, the Taliban were created by the Pakistan secret police and by the Pakistan government because Pakistan had four million Afghan refugees living on its border. Four million. Let's not forget that. So when the Taliban came into Afghanistan, they were welcomed as liberators. And it's no accident. They've got a white flag as the flag of the Taliban. And they were welcomed by the people of Afghanistan as liberators because they put an end to a 30-year civil conflict. When the Taliban took power, people began to understand that what they were trying to create was a theocracy. And they used their interpretation of the Koran as the basis of that theocracy. And obviously the Koran being uh, written as the word of God almost 1,500 years ago, obviously, like in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are various elements to it which kind of uh, you know don't make sense in, a, in the 20th and the 21st century now when the Taliban who had didn't have total control of the country they didn't control about 10 percent of the northern areas which um, border Uzbekistan Tajikistan and Turkmenistan um, supported al-qaeda and Al-Qaeda then was involved in exporting their Islamic revolution to the rest of the world, that the bombing of uh, the Trade Centre in New York created a problem because the West invaded in 2001 and the Taliban retreated back to the refugee camps on the border and back into the hills but they were never defeated as a government or as an alternative government. And for the last 20 years, they've been waging a war against what they have seen has been created in Afghanistan. Now, if you're wondering why 75,000 relatively poorly armed Taliban fighters could overrun a country that had 350,000 people in the armed forces, that was armed to the teeth with uh, Western arms, that had been supported the United States, Australia and uh, NATO for over 20 years through not just blood but through money, could be overthrown in less than 10 days. It's obvious. Now, if you look at the pictures of rural Afghanistan, as the Taliban came through, they were basically welcomed as liberators. And that's not a term people like to think of 
But as far as the Sunni majority, the Pushtun, were concerned, and especially in the rural and regional centres, they were, they were welcomed as liberators. So why were they welcomed as liberators, although there was panic in the major cities? Why did the armed forces collapse? They collapsed for one very good reason, because when the United States and NATO invaded Afghanistan in 2001 and the Taliban were driven out, and the Taliban had a very strict anti-corruption policies, what happened is that many of the old Mujahideen warlords then became the new centres of power in Afghanistan. And these were the people that were being bolstered by Western intervention in Afghanistan. These were the people who were making money hands over fist. And as a senior member of the Australian forces in Afghanistan said, basically the foreign forces lived in compounds on top of hills. They had minimal interaction with the local people and most of that interaction was a negative interaction as we've seen with the exposures of the brutality committed by the special armed services, you know, Australian special armed services. And he said, in the daytime, we ruled the area through the forts and in the night, the Taliban would come down to the villages and they'd be fed and, they'd be, and they would be given information by the locals. It was just wasn't just a matter of fear. It was much more than that. It's a matter of people identifying with people who have similar cultural and religious beliefs to them. So when this well equipped armed forces which had aircraft and tanks and massive supplies of weapons collapsed because the government was essentially corrupt. Most people were in the uh, Afghanistan military because they got paid. They got paid a wage. It was a way of surviving in that country. So we had a corrupt government which had been created by the West which gave a semblance of a democracy which didn't exist. And as far as winning hearts and minds, I hate to use that Vietnam analogy, as far as winning hearts and minds in the rural and regional areas, they didn't win hearts and minds because they didn't actually assist people in those areas in a major way. Obviously there were some initiatives. Now, the Taliban may be in Afghanistan, but it's not laid down Mazar as far as they're concerned because there are a lot of arms floating around Afghanistan there are certain sections in the north of Afghanistan uh, small provinces which haven't actually surrendered that are willing to protect what they have and the Taliban needs to consolidate its rule in Afghanistan, it's got a major problem. The Afghanistan they ruled between 1996 and 2001 is radically different to the, to the uh, 
Afghanistan we have in 2021. And if you look at the pictures of the Taliban fighters who find themselves in Kabul, you can actually see the surprise on many on many of their faces about this this modern, you know, city. Now let's not forget, sixty five percent of the population are under twenty. I repeat that again: sixty five percent are under twenty. Most of them, all of these under twenty, have had no experience of Taliban rule. Now the ta- Taliban imams are not stupid. They're highly motivated. They want to create an Islamic state. They want to introduce Sharia law into Afghanistan. And they know that their consolidation of power is not... They haven't been able to consolidate power currently. So what they need to do is do a softly, softly approach. We're going to expect the rights of women in terms of Sharia law. We're going to respect the rights of minorities. We're going to ensure that no terrorists use Afghanistan as their bases. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. So whether the Taliban will survive as a government and whether Afghanistan will be once again plunged into a civil war is totally dependent on the softly, softly approach the Taliban will initially take. So it's interesting. And it's interesting for me to say it's interesting because I'm not there. I'm not the one who's suffering. I'm not there. I'm not, one, I'm not there, right? You're not there. I mean, we can be armchair critics. Now, I'm not being an armchair critic. I'm just basically trying to explain the situation of why this mirage that the West had created in Afghanistan collapsed. It was a mirage, and it doesn't take much to you know, drive through a mirage. You get to the other side and you see reality. The dilemma is that with modern technology, the ability of the Taliban to impose a strict theocracy based on the Koran is limited. And whether the people of Afghanistan are happy to live under Sharia law or not is a debatable matter. Obviously, the middle classes in the cities, which have have been uh, supported by the West, will see this Taliban victory as the end of the earth as they know it. But many people in regional and rural Afghanistan, who are sick of war, want security. And if the Taliban can provide security, and if the Taliban can root out corruption, and if the Taliban can ensure the riches of the country are redistributed, it may be we may see the beginning of the Islamic Republic which will last decades, as we've seen in Iran. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, you've got a... I like the word hypocrisy. It's wonderful. Now, did you know there are good Islamists and bad Islamists? Did you know that? Now, I'm going to 
tell you a little story, and you can tell me if you can pick which country I'm talking about. Now, now obviously, the, we know the Taliban are bad, and we know the people of, you know, the government in Iran, they're bad, all right? They're bad Islamists, although the Taliban are Sunni, the Iranian leadership is Shia, they're bad, bad, bad is, Islamists, all right? Now, there are good Islamists who who uh, conduct public executions by cutting people's head off in public. They greatly restrict the role of women in their society. They exploit foreign workers. They liquefy their enemies. They get involved in little wars across the Middle East like in Yemen, where they're trying to neuter Iranian influence. They are people who have no respect for human rights. They are people who execute imams who don't follow their particular interpretation of Islam. They keep their Shia minority in chains. So who am I talking about? I'm talking about our main allies, apart from Israel, in the Middle East, the House of Saudi, which rules the Arabian Peninsula, commonly known as Saudi Arabia. Everything the Taliban has been accused of, including supporting terrorist networks, the Saudi royal family, which is a feudal monarchy, not an Islamic republic, but a feudal monarchy, is responsible for. And over the last 80 years, we, the West, have stood on the sidelines and said, it's okay, you do what you like in your country, as long as you pump out the oil and we can make a buck. So there are good Islamists, there are bad Islamists. Don't forget that. It's like there are good bombs and bad bombs, you know. The bombs you drop on, you know, you know, innocents somewhere are good bombs and the bombs that they let off are bad bombs. So let's think about the hypocrisy behind this because the West has always supported Islamic theocracies. The Islamic theocracies they don't support are those theocracies which uh, pose a threat to the state of Israel and those theocracies which pose a threat to their economic domination of the region. So when you look at the situation in Afghanistan and all the uh, stuff that appears in the corporate media in the virtual world regarding the uh, Taliban... Think about all the things that we have tolerated in, in the Arabian Peninsula, which has been ruled by the Saudi family with an iron fist, a feudal monarchy, for over six decades. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. Now, I'm going to do something which is more esoteric than esoteric. I'm going to draw parallels between the trade union movement and COVID-19 vaccination. 
Now, obviously, I think uh, most of you listening will think, well, this bloke has finally, well, he's finally lost what the last marvel he had left in his brain. But there are huge parallels between the trade union movement in this country and COVID-19 vaccination. And I'll explain why. When the Tullpuddle martyrs were deported to the penal colonies in Australia in 1826-27 for uh, trying to set up an agricultural union to improve their conditions, we saw the beginnings of the struggle for a trade union movement in this country. And over the next century, we saw more and more workers, essentially uh, initially skilled workers like the stonemasons and then unskilled workers, be incorporated into a trade union movement. And the thing about a trade union movement in this country, it's, it's very interesting, that if you're involved in a workplace struggle, if you're involved in a workplace struggle and you win that struggle and the Fair Work Commission puts its stamp on it, what happens is that every worker, whether they're unionised or non-unionised in this country, who is working under that award receives the benefit. So you don't have to be a trade union member. All the trade union members are those who put their neck out and are the ones who you know, went on strike or were involved in occupations and disputes with the police and the government of the day. If that struggle is won, the benefits that are won by that trade union struggle filter out to all other workers unionised or non-unionised in that particular field of industry. Now, let's look at vaccination. It's the same thing. Now, obviously, there'll be people in this country who, for whatever reason, don't want to be vaccinated. Now, I think it'll be about 5% by the end of the year. There'll be a small minority who don't want to be vaccinated for religious reasons, philosophical reasons, political reasons, you know, whatever, Okay. That's the pandemic of the unvaccinated, which we're waiting for. But the more people who become vaccinated, the greater the protection for the unvaccinated. So if you go and have your vaccination, you're not only looking after yourself and your family and your friends and your work colleagues, you're also looking, at, looking after that 5% of the population that does not want to be vaccinated. That's what herd immunity is about. So in many ways, there is this parallel between vaccination and the trade union movement. We take the risks. They obtain the benefits. We take the risk of vaccination. They obtain the benefit. And that's that parallel, the fact that we're all part of the same society. We take the risk. We obviously obtain the benefit, but those who don't want to take the risk also obtain the benefit. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Oh, people of Australia, fellow Australians, men and women, Yes, I'm having a go at poor old Goffy Whitlam. 
used to start off his speeches with men and women of Australia and the uh, crowds would burst into rapturous applause. Now obviously I can't hear any applause but I'm sure there isn't any out there. But I'm just worried. I am very worried and I'll tell you why I'm worried because I've worked out the government's electoral strategy. Now there is no way the Morrison-led too little, too late coalition government is going to do, not go to an election this year. No way. No way whatsoever. Things don't look good for them. No way. Irrespective of how lacklustre and boring and similar ALP policies are to the Morrison government's policy, because the ALP is trying to create a small target you know, an electoral campaign. They did the big target last time and got frashed because of the corporate media and the government girl did ABC. They got frashed. But this time, the Morrison government will wait till April or May. It's the latest they can go to a federal election is May 2022. So they're working towards an April-May election date and they're hoping... They're hoping that with their friends in the corporate-owned media, especially the Murdoch-owned media, they're hoping against hope that people will forget their gross incompetence as far as their reaction to COVID-19 has been concerned. In the very beginning, the majority of the government believed it wasn't a problem. There were great Trump supporters there. It wasn't a problem, just like influenza. No big deal. And then when reality began to sink in, they set about attempting to contain the problem without worrying about vaccination, going to a billion-dollar deal with the privatised Commonwealth Serum Laboratories to produce AstraZeneca vaccines for this country. That sounded like a plan then, didn't it? A good plan. You know about that old saying about keeping your eggs in the same basket? Well, by now, as we see people around the globe beginning to enjoy the benefits of vaccination and opening up in their society, we're still racing to vaccinate people, especially people under 40, who have not been offered a vaccination and will not be able to be vaccinated for months because of this government's utter incompetence. Now, I think we should call this government the too-little-too-late government. I'll give you another example. Afghanistan, right? Now, obviously, once the, the Taliban consolidates power and is able to exercise power through the institutions which will continue to function in Afghanistan it will take retribution against those people they were involved with who are on the other side. It's normal in any situation where war happens. Retribution is what the victor normally does. Although occasionally giving people a mass amnesty can consolidate power. Now, the Morrison-led... Coalition, the too little, too late government had since April 
when they removed their embassy, the Australian embassy, from Kabul to evacuate Australians and people who had worked, Afghanis who had worked for the Australian Armed Forces and the Australian Embassy and the Australian private security companies to Australia. But did they do that? No. Too little too late as far as vaccination is concerned. Too little too late as far as evacuation of Afghanistan people is concerned. And it gets better. Now, I heard the head of the United Nations lambast Australia for being a climate change denier. While the rest of the world is signing up to zero emissions by 2050, the Morrison-led too-little-too-late government, as far as climate change is concerned, and its policies have always been pathetic as far as climate, climate emergency is concerned, again continues to drag its feet regarding doing anything about climate change. And it gets better. These are the too little, too late government. They seem to be only able to act when they're forced to act. For example, there are a thousand Australian citizens who are in Indonesia currently, which is going through a mass epidemic. And as I said at the beginning of the program, that the eldest son of uh, Dr Jacob Rumbiak from the West Parkland uh, office here in Melbourne, Sendai, died of COVID-19. He was only 34 on the 9th of August after a short illness, three or four days. There are people all over Indonesia dying from COVID-19 because their vaccination program has been particularly slow, the rollout. So here we are. The Morrison Lavgum has organised an evacuation flight. Yes, yes, <laughs> I can't believe it. From Bali to Australia, there are a thousand people on the waiting list. And what has the too little, too late government done? It's organised one plane to take out the two hundred most vulnerable in inverted commas back to Australia, but left the other eight hundred to rot. And if you think they can get private planes back. There aren't any flights. So all other countries have been sending planes to various parts of the world to pick up their citizens and bring them back home. We continue to twiddle our thumb and put enormous restrictions on people returning. Let's move on. The too little, too late government, as far as quarantine is concerned, as far as using CBD hotels, central business district hotels, as quarantine hubs and the disasters that have occurred because of leakages from those quarantine hubs. Well, everybody says, you know, the hub, the quarantine hub at Darwin is the best in Australia because it's out in the open, people can breathe fresh air, transmission is reduced, it's secure. We continue to quarantine people in the CBD of this country. Could you imagine it? It gets better. Let's look at vaccination rates among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Although most Torres Strait Islanders, over 70% have now been vaccinated in the, who live in the Torres Strait, the rest of the Torres Strait community and the Aboriginal community, the vaccination rates are woefully 
low. Because the government of the day has not been willing to set up vaccination units which go into these communities and negotiate with the health services providers in these communities to provide vaccinations for people. Then we have the too little, too late Morrison-led coalition government's reaction to the misinformation and the garbage which is peddled on social media by a minuscule minority, and that's the key minuscule minority, about COVID-19 and vaccination. And what do they do about it? Nothing. We have members of their own parliament, members of their own parliament, you know, talking about the same garbage. Well, I'm sure you can find many other examples of the too little, too late Morrison-led coalition government's policy initiatives. It doesn't have any. It has no policy initiatives. And I'll tell you why it doesn't have any policy initiatives. Because the Liberal National Party cabinet is one of the most lacklustre, incompetent, a group of people who find themselves in power through the use of misinformation and through bribing vast sections of the population if they find themselves in power because they don't believe in climate, the science of climate emergency. Many of them don't believe that COVID-19 exists. Many of them wouldn't know what day it is. But ultimately... It's our responsibility. We as a people elect them to power. We as a people believe that removing franking credits from the rich and powerful would somehow be the end of civilization as we knew it. Why shouldn't the taxpayer give money to people who own stocks and shares as if they're not making enough money themselves from stocks and shares currently? Right? Why? Well, look at the corporate-owned media, every day, the same set of garbage. Occasionally, we see an interesting article or interesting television commentary or an interesting podcast about this and that. But when it comes to the central elements of the society, inequalities in power and wealth, we seem over and over and over and over again to make the same mistakes because... The Taliban fighters were highly motivated, educated in the madrasas, fed the propaganda, come out the end of the line, willing to give up their lives. In this country, the only thing that seems to motivate people is making a buck. Making a buck. And if anything highlights this more today, it's the lunacy, lunacy of the continuing increase in stock market prices and the continuing increase in housing prices during the middle of pandemic because of the ridiculously low interest rates we are seeing currently. And we're seeing people being able to manipulate the system, drive up profits, make paper profits, and then move on, leaving the community to pick up the tab at the end of the day. Let's move on. Now, 
Are you a BHP shareholder? I'm sure you're rejoicing. Not about the $11.7 billion profit they made this year because of the extraordinary prices of iron ore, which is mainly bought by China. But BHP has just crabbed, walked away from fossil fuels. You know when you see a crab? It doesn't go forwards, it goes sideways. Now they've pretended to divest themselves of their fossil fuels by merging with Woodside Petroleum. Yeah? They've merged with Woodside Petroleum. It's not going to decrease their footprint, but what it does, it gives them a clean slate as far as their uh, shareholders are concerned because although they don't want to admit it, the people who make money are beginning to understand even in the corporate sector, that you are not going to make money from fossil fuels anymore. It is a dead industry. Unless the taxpayer is willing to bankroll it, and if we, if the coalition had its way, we'd be bankrolling coal-fired power stations around the country to uh, provide energy. So here we see BHP, the world's greatest mineral exploiter, I won't use the word producer, exploiter, BHP, the company that exploits the resources on this on this uh, continent for a peppercorn rent as far as uh, royalties are concerned and employment and taxes are concerned, now walking away, crab walking away from fossil fuels. I would have been a bit more impressed if they walked away like a two-legged animal or a four-legged animal, not a bloody crab walking sideways from fossil fuels. And last but not least... Does what's happened in Afghanistan have any lessons for Australians? Now, currently, the federal government's re-election strategy is based on creating fear. Now, this has been derailed by their lacklustre performance as far as COVID-19 and vaccination is concerned. But if you may remember a few months ago, we were on a war footing against the Chinese. You like that? 25 million people in the Southern Hemisphere on a war footing against 1.4 billion people in the Northern Hemisphere of one of the most sophisticated arms uh, armaments uh, process. We're on a war footing. Economic war, this war, that war, you know, get the Chinese companies out of Australia, stoke the yellow peril kind of uh, fear that's always been part and parcel of Australian society. You know, a European civilization in the midst of Asia, that fear they were going to be overrun by the yellow hordes. Well, they keep stoking it and keep stoking it and keep stoking it, thinking that our great ally, the United States of America, is going to stand up and defend us as they did in the World War II. That we are the canary. We are the canary. We've become the United States canary as far as the war footing with China is concerned. We have many, over three to 4,000 United States troops stationed in the Northern Territory. We have bases like Pine Gap, which have been here for decades around the country, which help to... Uh, Organised the United States forward military defence strategy. We have Mr Morrison, the too little, too late, you know, pre- uh, Prime Minister of Australia, 
jumping up and down about human rights in China while doing nothing to resolve issues about human rights as far as one of the most highly incarcerated populations is concerned in, this, in the world in this country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and the list goes on and on. So if there is one lesson to be learnt from Afghanistan, don't be the United States canary in this proxy war against Chinese, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. Because you cannot rely, as we see in Afghanistan with our very eyes, you cannot rely on the United States government going the distance. And when push comes to shove, do you really think they care what happens to us before what happens to the people of the United States of America? The history of the United States has always been a history about putting them first and everybody else. Second, including their allies. So if there is one big lesson to be learnt from the Afghanistan debacle, and it is a debacle after 20 years, it's the fact that you cannot rely on the United States of America to protect us and that we need to negotiate new ways of dealing with this emerging superpower. Whether it's under the Chinese communist rule or not, it'll be the same issue for decades. How do we deal with an emerging superpower when we know the United States of America is no longer able or willing, and that's the key, willing to expend the blood and the money to support us in this crisis? So this should be a wake-up call for all Australians. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. That's right. You can leave pleasant messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can email me at info at anarchistage at yahoo.com. Info at pibci.net. Want to change the course of history? want to change the political direction, social direction, cultural direction of this country, join public interest before corporate interest. Go to pipsy.net. Haven't got a computer? You can always leave an address on post office. You can always write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville, 3052. YouTube channel, public interest before corporate interest. Instagram, you name it, we've got it. Not that it does much for you in the virtual world, but it's their Facebook page, Joseph Toscani. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of those wonderful people of the Community Radio Network. Difficult times demand difficult questions. The key is the sun will rise tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Whether we're here or not is a different matter. Listen in to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, Next week. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind. 
wash my hands. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.